freedom and censorship can't exist in the same world. And that's true whether it's the government or private corporations who do the censoring. Hi, I'm Ron Coleman, and welcome to the Coleman Nation podcast. It's a show where I sit down with guests to discuss the future of free expression and thought in our interconnected world. Here, we will focus on issues involving social media, cancel culture, and free expression that everybody who cares about ideas or freedom should be wrestling with. Culminators, thank you once again for joining us. Today, I have a very, very interesting person with us, and his name is Jeff Deist. Jeff is the president of the Mises Institute, and I have only glancing familiarity with it. I know that a lot of people that I know know much more about Mises than I do. I'd like to hear more about it. And I'd like to I get to know Jeff a little bit better. We, uh, we, know, we know each other from Twitter a little bit. But he's a guy with a very fertile and creative intellect. And I'm sure he's going to give us lots to talk about here. So, Jeff, thank you for joining. Yes, thanks. Thanks for inviting me. My pleasure. My pleasure. Where are you speaking to us from? I live in the small college town of Auburn, Alabama. Is that Auburn? So is that where Auburn is? Yeah, we're right across the street from the university. And uh, believe it or not, Alabama has a uh, vibrant and robust Federalist Society. I do believe it. I know, actually. I have a case that has been um, pending in the Middle District of Alabama now for three years on a motion to dismiss. Uh, three years, hmm. that is three times 365 as of last May. Uh, so I, I have had the opportunity to, uh, to, to be a little bit, have Alabama in my life in a way that I otherwise would never have. But I, in the process, I, yes, I learned that there are, there are um, conservatives there and people, people interested in, in a lot of the stuff that we are. Tell, me, tell us, tell the people, tell America about Mises.org. Well, we try to be an alt school of sorts. Um, economics, I think, has gone off the rail. That's really our main focus. I think it's become an industry, a, a profession, uh, both in terms of professional economists and then academic economists, which doesn't do much good and actually does a lot of bad. And, <laughs> and that's a, a terrible state for any social science, I think. That's a deplorable state, and that's something we ought to be thinking about. There's an awful lot of people especially in academia in this country, who were involved in, in a racket, right? What we would call a, a large jobs program, which produces sinecures for them, and uh, they're smart people, and, and generally speaking, they're well-intentioned people. But what they're doing to, or to young people, for young people, with young people in college, uh, is producing a lot of debt, and it's producing a lot of unhappiness. And uh, I think people are learning about economics in a very stilted or dry or technical or mathematical or statistical way. And, and we call this physics envy, right? E economics is a social science. It's not something where you develop a hypothesis and test it empirically. It's about humans, and humans are sort of irrational, cantankerous beings. So I think economics has really lost its way, and I think that it, it, in some ways it mirrors a lot of the political problems that this country has. Well, you, boy, I mean, right now, we could talk about this topic alone for the next half an hour, because I, I majored in economics you know, during the Stone Age, and there, there, were, there were two tracks. Mm -hmm. And I was already a history 
major who was pressing himself. It was it, physics envy exactly. I felt that it would be good for me to harden my interest in the social sciences and my interest in humanities by making myself do something a little bit more quantitative. But on the other hand, I, I, I was well aware of my capabilities, especially given the competition at Princeton. So I, I took the soft path and not the math path. And mm -hmm. even then I managed, it, it was a nightmare. I, 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 it just it depressed my GPA so much. But I will say having, you know, ha having done this really um, disciplined self flagellation with my academic career, I did learn economics. I mean, I did learn this paradigm for looking at problems, for analyzing problems. Uh, do I use ISLM curves for anything? No, that, that was just a way of understanding a certain kind of macroeconomic problem. But do I understand supply and demand? Do I understand why markets work? And I understand incentives? Do I understand, you know, that was a great experience. And and I subsequently learned read, reading a book called um, Range about, about the broad education, I'm sure you're familiar with it, that economics is one of the few non-STEM majors that people come out of college knowing how to apply, how to think. But you're telling me now that what, that the that economics is be in the in in academia in the 21st century isn't I, I think is what you're saying isn't giving students the, the kind of tools that I that I came out with. Is that right? Well the bright spot is is that uh, economics majors and economics PhDs are getting jobs in a way that maybe MBAs and gender studies PhDs and these sorts of people are not. Uh, so there's a bright spot. Most of them either work for the Fed which is a technocratic mathematical modeling uh, universally complex right. place. Yeah, right. And then the rest are going, or some are getting, you know, the top, top ones can still get those old fashioned academic tenure track jobs. But the rest are going into what we'd probably call behavioral economics. They're, they're going to work at places like Amazon. So, the, you know, the chimp clicks to buy one thing. How do we get the chimp to click to buy two things or three things? And uh, I guess that's economics. There's nothing wrong with that. I, but um, I, I think I, I, my point is that economics uh, is in disrepute because people see it as something that's in service of politics. And, the, and that tends to be left or right politics, for lack of a better description. Well, let's, let's talk a little, let me focus on one aspect of that then. Because you talked about, um, you talked about, I have been fascinated by what has happened and what has not happened in antitrust in the last generation. And as a my working for an organization named after a great advocate of the free market, such as you do, I don't I'm not exactly sure of your attitude towards antitrust. But I do know that certainly I mean, you know, I took a lot of antitrust it is considered to be a, a handmaiden traditionally to mark to, to the to the market, except by people mm -hmm. who, who make the argument. And, and I interviewed one of those a couple of weeks ago. We feel no that anything you do that gives the government more power over, over economic and other activity is a bad thing. We are now in this space, though, where and partially as a result of the the Chicago schools 
impact on on law uh you know what happened in the 80s and 90s mm-hmm. there's there there seems to never be a an anti-competitive practice that a federal court won't will find is an antitrust violation this seems like something that economists and economic economics minded people such as this, this lawyer right here should be concerned about but i'm not sure necessarily in other words i tried to spring that on you know a, 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 on another think tanker and she said no this is great like i said less the less the better mm-hmm. it was all it was a bad idea in the first it was a bad idea in 1895 and it's a bad idea now what do you what do you say well it's a tough one uh, antitrust is hellishly complex and I think, as you point out, you know, the law and economics movement of the 80s and 90s and Posner and Epstein and others at Chicago were part of that. Uh, that, that created this idea that the role of the judiciary, for example, um, and, and I would argue antitrust straddles legislative and judicial, uh, but that the role of the judiciary is to create more e- efficient outcomes. And economists love to talk about efficiency. But justice and efficiency are two very different things in many cases, right? Yeah. Uh, so I, unless, I think- Unless you can be such a law and economics animal that you can find a way to quantify, the, to capture those utiles of justice, yes. you know, and turn utiles them into, in, justice. Into, into deltas and, and you know, and, and, and other Greek letters, but I'm not that guy. <laughs> well, the, the, I guess we think of- antitrust as something traditionally, at least in the 20th century, driven more on the left. I'm not sure that that's accurate, but the problem with the modern left when it comes to anything economic is they just don't think that trade-offs exist. And so, yeah, there's trade-offs. I think doctrinaire libertarians have to come to terms with the idea that um, corporations are, are not our friends. Um, these Facebooks, these Twitters, these Googles, these Amazons. I mean, in many ways, these are state-connected malevolent actors, in my humble opinion. And, you know, the idea that, well, we shouldn't have any antitrust, we shouldn't have any uh, change to Section 230, for example, in terms of their uh, liability for libel and that sort of thing. Um, You know, I mean, this is the this is sort of the debate right now, isn't it? It's the the Claremonsters yes. versus the National Review Table. When you stick to your principles, you lose. Um, and we we're losing. We're losing to Twitter and Facebook and, and these people. There's no question about it. Uh, antitrust is a man. Oh man, that's sort of a taking a, a nuclear weapon sometimes to an anthill. Just depends on the industry, but and and that's the, part of the problem, right? Because you always find that in, in my most recent antitrust you know, experience on the civil side was you define the market wrong. You you know, you, and, and here you have judges and the judges, I suppose, are getting younger, but they're getting, in fact, they're starting to be a lot younger than I am. But judges who don't really, really get the internet, who are having a world of trouble understanding what it means for a Google to dominate search, not just a percent, it's not U.S. Mm-hmm. steel, Oh gosh, no! But you, you know, there, there, fifteen percent of searches are done on Bing, so it's fine. No, there are all these network effects. The whole you, have, you don't understand what's coalescing around Google. You don't understand the 
the, the cultural and economic and and social and political power of a Twitter from a, you know, so how do I define that market? Are there other ways for me to tweet? Yeah, kind of, but that's not the point. So, so Mark, you know, what's the, therefore I'm, so what I'm saying is what's the, what is that marketplace? What the heck is that marketplace? We have to really change our, you know, like you said, we're losing and maybe we, you know, losing this battle is a fatal occurrence because. Well, uh, even 10 or 15 years ago, I would have argued personally, well, gee whiz, some grumpy traffic cop or DMV clerk has more power over me than Google because my relationship with Google is voluntary. But if that traffic cop pulls me over, if I have to get my car registered, that, that relationship's involuntary. The problem is the state, the state, the state, the state, the state. Well, I, I think I've had a change on that. I think I've, uh, you know, a lot of things have happened, things, uh, happy things from my perspective, things like Brexit and Trump. And, um, you know, I think we just have to, to look at this differently now and say, um, you know, is antitrust uh, the weapon? I mean, I, I don't know. That's, that's, that's pretty complex. But I do think we have to look at these big companies. Look, look at Facebook. Okay. They, okay. We can. We don't even have to talk about antitrust. We can talk about old-fashioned contract law. You have a contract, a terms of service, which you sign. What the hell kind of contract says? Okay, you give me your data and the pictures of your grandkids or whatever, and in exchange, we give you this platform. We can take away from you at any time for any reason on our say so, and we don't have to explain it. Now, in the old days, we would say that was an adhesion contract or whatever. Uh, and today, that well, that's a term of service. That's a private company, bro. Yeah, all of a sudden, everyone's a libertarian. Everyone's yeah. a libertarian. Right? All of a sudden, everyone's a libertarian. Uh, you know, and I, I actually had a, another stinker where a judge uh, threw out a, um, a tortious interference case under Florida law and told me that the terms of service between my client and Twitter didn't establish a contractual relationship. They held, the, they mm -hmm. used the terms of service to throw out the case, but said for, for purposes of having been deprived of the benefits of the commercial, um, you know, of, of the commercial, of the, the commercial benefits of being on Twitter, that wasn't a commercial relationship that was interfered with. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Judges, I mean, I, I apologize, as I so often do to people who listen regularly, all three of them, they talk about the judicial culture they start hearing each other. I think they're looking over their shoulders in a way that when we were in law school, they didn't do because there wasn't the internet. There wasn't this immediacy. And when one judge sees what other judges are doing, even if they're ideologically not inclined the same way, I think it begins to oppress them and they begin to think very much the same. I'm not going to be the first guy to consider a Trump election challenge seriously because no one is. None of the kids are doing that. I'm not going to be the first one. Well, what happens when most judges, most lawyers, and even most jurists are, you know, the people who are currently under 30 and super woke? I mean, right now you go to your lawyer and you say, hey, I had a fall in a grocery store. And he or she takes a look at it and looks at the case law and looks at the statute and says, well, you know, I'm sorry, but I, I don't think you have a case because X, Y, and Z. 
But what if, what if we get to the point where juries and, and lawyers and judges just say, well, I don't much care about the statute. I don't much care about the case law. I think you should just get some money because that just feels like it's right because they're a big, greedy public supermarket and you fell. I, I mean, we, we talk about rule of law. What does that mean to people under 30? Right. Well, and not only that, they hear that from certain Supreme Court justices. They, they hear you say, oh. but, it's an, but it's an emergency. But it's an emergency. I know that's, but see, we had, that was the whole point of the Constitution, was that in an emergency, these would be the controlling principles, not what your, what your gut tells you. But, you know, to some extent, it has become abstract. These, you know, the rule of law has become abstract. And economics, as you say, has, has, is not, I mean, to go back to actually your original point, when, you, when we talk about all these things, in fact, I thought you wanted to say something slightly different about Democrats, which was that they don't seem to recognize the existence of economics as a phenomenon. I mean, economics as you, but that was what you said because economics is about trade-offs, is about trade-offs. Well, listen, if everybody, if all we have to do is uh, get rid of the gas tax, and it'll be fine because, well, you know, we'll do a gas tax holiday and, you know, it'll, people will feel better. Okay, so people will, people will, of course, buy more gas than, than supplyable. Well, no, no, that doesn't. Okay, well, let's talk about, let's yell at the people who sell gasoline. Gasoline, gas stations. I mean, this, this was for an economics yeah. major, but I think for anyone over age 12. Stop raising gas prices so much. It's like a complete lack of understanding that there's a market that you can't, whether you're an oil company or a refiner or a, or, or, or a service station, you cannot just raise prices as high as you want them to be. If you could, you would have done Why would you have waited right. until Putin invaded Ukraine? So there's a, an utter lack of economics understanding. Does Mises do anything to, to, to promote understanding of the fact that there, there's, there's gravity in the world? And that <laughs> I, hope, I sure hope we do because uh, it, you know, it starts and ends with scarcity. And I think a lot of our friends on the left really think we're in some sort of post-scarcity environment. And now it's all just about how you redistribute it. We've got enough wealth now. And this is from a very, uh, this is a very luxurious uh, position to take. This is from people who have spent their whole lives in the West, surrounded everywhere you go. There's a Starbucks, there's clean, cheap energy, there's food and groceries and restaurants and hotels and hot and cold running water and air conditioning. And so you just sort of think that this stuff will materialize around us happily, regardless of what we do. And that's just not true. Societies sometimes go sideways and sometimes they go backwards. But it is, I mean, I, I think you're onto something really important here, which is that the level of wealth, not, let's not talk about its distribution, which as free marketers may or may not make us uncomfortable. Uh, talking about distribution of wealth, but in the system, there's undone, undeniably a fun, such a, an unbelievable amount of wealth. There is, especially among those who make the decisions for society, no real relationship with scarcity or even with the, ex, with the expenditure of energy to make things happen, which, I mean, you know, 
of all things you talk about college, they're not learning anything about that in college. Right. I'm going to, I'm going to actually share briefly this um, thread that you alluded to when we were talking about preparing for this. I don't, a couple of, maybe it was last year or so I wrote about this idea that everyone's an information worker and I'm mm-hmm. guilty of, I'm guilty of this as well. And about, you know, and I mentioned that my, my dad spent one day working on a cement mixer and he said, this is, for, this is for the birds. And he's, a, he, he was a much more robust and, you know, hardworking man than, than I will ever be. And I, I'm not going to make everybody read this, but I said, uh, I did say this point, which you, you, you seem to mention uh, struck you. A society where almost no one understands how mechanical things work or even the mechanics of the world around us or, or what real work is, is not going to be a healthy society. And I, I think that's true both physically in, in terms of, I mean, how many kids, n- none of my sons, and they're, they're not spoiled. They're adults, the young adults, they do whatever has to be done. They help out their mom, they help out their dad. Mm-hmm. They, when they were home, they shovel the snow. They've never rotated their tires. They've never changed a tire. They don't know how to change a tire. Mm-hmm. It's just, well, because why? Because Geico for an extra $2 a month will send someone out to do it for you. So you sit there and play on your phone <laughs> until the guy comes to change your tire. It's such a different way of existing. We have lost the, um, the traction that comes with being connected to the physical world and now we have, like, as you say, p- people don't recognize scarcity and they don't recognize economic forces. So what do you think we can do about that? Well, uh, COVID shows how unhealthy it is when we're inside too much, when we're looking at screens too much. So regardless of what happens with technology or even the marketplace, that doesn't change you know, the human capacity for uh, you know, that we, doesn't make us uh, change our hearing, our eyesight, or our tactile sense, or anything like that. So we're engineered for a different world than we live in. That's a great, that's a great point. Uh, and, and, and individually and socially. And socially. We, we are we're probably, to, we're probably wired for groups, in-group preferences of 300 people or something. And so when you got the whole world coming at you on Twitter, it probably makes you crazy. So we're all crazy. I mean, we are all a little bit crazy. I mean, there's always been stress in human life. Yes. And until a hundred or so years ago, or maybe even less for many of us or, or many of our families, that stress often involved starvation or the threat of the imminent threat of annihilation. Now it revolves around social groupings. Who's angry at me? Who's approving of me? Who was driving a nicer car than I am? to what that these phenomena have always existed and, and among a very thin crust of the world but here in the west that's all anybody's living does market economics have a way of having any kind of effect on culture oh definitely no no question about it I, and i think a, a huge a uh, percentage of what we consider the market is fake. Uh, uh, we live in a fake world, which is uh, debt fueled in many cases. And that feels good. It's just like, I, I, I don't know, but I imagine heroin feels good. 
but you know you pay a price later and so that's that's really a big story of what changed in the west was we went from more of a savings and an accumulation society to more of a spending and borrowing society so that's that's a civilizational sea change in the way that we go about our business versus let's say our grandparents and how, I, do you, I don't think, how do you explain I, the problem with how do you explain the problem with that with in other words the end of the you you and i know as economics heads that for most for our entire adult lives the imminent collapse of the financial system and especially of all things human has been predicted as a result of the national debt and gosh darn it here we still are <laughs> and, and that's a really facile response because the fact that you can keep buying off an imminent, you know, a, a disaster, and instead of making it a bad disaster, it becomes absolutely <laughs> catastrophic, isn't really a response. But on the other hand, though, it's why is it not? Why isn't it working? How do we know it's not? How do we know it's fake? Well, uh, I would say we know it's fake because, precisely because it's debt fueled precisely because we're not uh, increasing our productivity because we're all so, uh, uh, you know, such uh, miserly people, you know, such, uh, you know, we're, we're not all putting money away for a rainy day, you know, whether that's on the individual level or the societal level, you know, we don't see our big corporations in this country making profits and paying out dividends the way they used to. We don't see them investing in a lot of capital expenditures. Uh, we see them, uh, you know, spending the money. Uh, we see individuals well, not spending only, money. Not only spending money, right? But they're they're divorced from their shareholders' interests. They they do oh, virtual virtual signaling. Completely. I mean, it is run. They are like feudal states that are run for the barons and you know and kings and queens and shareholders. I mean, I mean, this seems like this seems shareholder rights seems like a real bread and butter. Uh, you know, mises kind of, uh, you know, kind of issue. It is odd, indeed, how it is, it just not has not been a force, you know, they have there have really been so there's been so little pushback on the shareholder level, uh, you know, on these sort of things, what's going on there? Well, if you look at public companies, especially thing public companies, we think about and talk a lot about like Apple and Tesla and sexy companies. If you, I mean, they're publicly owned, but they're not really owned by individuals. If you look at the mutual funds and investment groups which invest in them, um, the managers of those funds and banks tend to have the same worldview <laughs> and the same values as the uh, founders and management of those companies, especially in the tech area. So the, we, we live in a time where, unlike my grandparents, they wanted a dividend check. That the, the, the reason you own the company is the same reason you might own a dry cleaner or a pizzeria, to pull income out of it. Well, that's not the case anymore. People buy stocks today strictly in terms of, I'm going to sell this to a greater fool for more money than I paid. <laughs> it's, it's just capital gains per se. No one's paying dividends, which strikes me as, as a big change. And so, and, and and I'm sure something else that strikes you as a big change is the contents of your 401k where you are IRA. That might've been a perfectly apt response to my question. How do we know it's fake? Stock prices for the last five, 10 years have been based on this make-believe monopoly money. 
And I, I hate to think there isn't going to be, you know, some kind of firming up of stock prices, but there's no necessary, no necessary reason that there has to be because so much of it has been debt driven. We're printing money as a replacement for fiscal policy. What's a budget? Did the government used to have budgets? So that was something that during our lifetime, I think, actually, that, ha that took place, right? Yeah, they used to have budgets. They used to pass them as opposed to now they operate under continuing resolutions. Uh, but those budgets were always just aspirational documents. You know, they would lay out, let's say, the next five or 10 years in terms of projected outlays and projected tax revenue. But nobody ever went back and said, you know, oh, gosh, remember five years ago, we thought we were only going to spend this much. So we better cool it, guys. You know, we better tamp it back. I mean, the United States has a very unique privilege. We ha we're the, the reserve currency. So we have the biggest, baddest currency and we have the biggest, baddest military. Uh, so we still have a lot of pull. So we, we can do this for a long time. And as you said, uh, chicken littles like me have been saying that the debt and deficit are going to bring us down for a long, long time. But, but they do bring countries like Turkey down. Turkey can't do the same things we can do. Turkey, when Turkey borrows money, it borrows money in euro or dollars. It doesn't, so it can't print Turkish lira to pay those back. <laughs> so Turkey has, has uh, fake booms as it did it really 2010 to 2012, where it was like, oh my gosh, they've got 15% GDP growth. Well, that was all borrowed, folks. They were building infrastructure. That shows up as GDP. So now Turkey's got a hangover. Turkey has something like 70% annual inflation. It has a, a lira, which is devaluing just unbelievably against the dollar and the euro. So, uh, you know, it, uh, and we it also, doesn't I mean, last forever. Well, it, and it, here, all right, so here's another problem though. So for a middle-class guy such as myself, I'm looking at my 401k, I'm pushing 60. And I'm thinking, okay, I, I sure hope things improve because I, I'm, I may not be able to do this forever. The people, so the people who are making decisions for us, however, are utterly insulated from local yes. effects, fluctuations in the stock market. We are ruled in a way never before seen in American history by immensely, immensely wealthy people, many of whom are members of Congress who became immensely wealthy while in Congress, but all the major office holders, people are, you know, and it, the, like you, as you said, the people at BlackRock, the people, the people who run the funds, they are, they're never going to feel any of this. How, how do you ever, I mean, I remember when I was in college, one of the courses I took was on inequality of income, distribution of income. And one of the points that I, that I was able to accept, even though I was this, you know, uh, reactionary cold warrior, you know, free market Ronald Reagan guy was that, you know, there is a cultural cost that we have to reckon with when there's a great disparity of income because people could, because psychology and economics both teach us that if there's a weird, there's a weird thing in human nature where I would rather have less than know that you have more. Mm -hmm. and, and, and therefore, a healthy, the, the economics, the free market itself will only function properly if people feel that they have a stake in it. People, okay, so yeah. what's, what we have now is 
mad is just is madness. That was the 80s when I first started thinking about this. Now it's 40 years later and the the distribution of income is so wildly out of whack. That sounds like a looming problem as well. I mean, what do free marketeers do about that? What do we say about that? Yeah. Well, I, 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 stumped, him. A, I stumped him. <laughs> since this is a podcast, I have a, <laughs> I have a facile and uh, a answer that makes you feel good. And, I, and I'm oh, going to no. say it's, it's the it's Fed. It's, it's the, the Fed. Fed. It's it the is Fed, this, stupid. It is the financialization of the economy away from making stuff and, and towards moving money around. And that's what I think is a big part of really gross wealth inequality. And, and I do think it's a problem, whether that's psychological, whatever, it's human nature. You know, we're, on the right, we're supposed to recognize human nature and try to develop a, a, a society that comports with human nature. And envy is part of that. And we have, a, a, I think, a, it, it's not just the inequality, it's that I think people sense correctly, they smell rat, they sense that there is a, a huge element of undeserved wealth. In other words, people who really didn't do anything all that great for society. Right. You know, some, some football star or pop star, we think, oh, hey, great, they're rich. They, you know, they make all this music. Or, or we see somebody who develops a product. Or we even look at Elon Musk, the guy sending rockets all over the place and Teslas and stuff. That's, we, we get that. It's a tangible you know, achievement. But, and but, you can, uh, you can you know, take it or leave it. But, you, you understand but there are that. people, there are very low level people at a BlackRock who get a two or $3 million bonus a year. And nobody knows what the hell they do. That's, that is a problem. And then also you have people who have made careers out of so-called government service and oh. fail, fail consistently and get kicked upstairs and upstairs while also sharing the wealth with family members. See, I mean, at the end of the day, there's always, there, there's always an argument for reducing the size and scope of government because it just it's that many fewer square feet of dike that have to have thumbs stuck into them, right? But it's just so hard to imagine at this point how you roll back. We're, I mean, we're just, yes. ship of state is so out of, you know. Well, there's, but there, look, there's something very, very beautiful happening in our society right now. Something very beautiful. And that oh. is whether you want to call it soft secession, aggressive federalism, regionalism, localism. I mean, this to me, COVID accelerated it. It was already there. Um, and, and I think it is really the answer. I mean, when we start to have real economic problems in this country due to the size of the debt and also the entitlements, let's not forget those. Those don't show up on the balance sheet. If you were a private company run with, it, with pension obligations and you didn't have that on your balance sheet, you'd be in jail. But well, Uncle Sam doesn't, you, doesn't show that. So, if you ran Social Security, you'd be in jail for running a Ponzi right? scheme. So, uh, you know, I really think the idea that people are going to devolve uh, to states is is imperfect, but glorious. And and I love to see it. <laughs> I think you're right. I, I do think the move towards localism and also economic localism. I mean, I it is it's a little bit distressing. I mean, look, I, I think the the bloom is off somewhat the, the rose of of crypto and people realize it's not it's not going to be that easy and it's not going to be that free of government interference it, but 
the more nodes that can be developed that are still relatively free of government direct of direct government control the better we are and yes there are always going to be people who are going to find a way to squeeze that undeserved you know uh, leverage out of it but people create the amazing thing about our system is that and, and now it's a podcast so i'll say something incredibly stupidly optimistic as well it's phenomenal how people find ways to create wealth yeah you know i, I mean you have the, you have this whole podcasting industry which of course has created no wealth for me but only because i don't want to sell pillows online all right but not that there's anything wrong with that but there are you just look around at the at the apps that people are starting. I mean, just there is this something unique, I think, to the American um, mindset of just finding ways to solve problems or even to invent problems so that you have to solve them or whatever it takes. But the part of the reason we've gotten that why the chicken littles have been so wrong for so long is that who dreamt in the 1980s of the internet? Yeah. So when we talked about productivity increases, we were thinking about, you know, those jobs are going, boys, and they ain't coming back. We're not going to build cars anymore. Who, who the hell knows where his car is even built anymore? We haven't even talked about nationalism. To some extent, you're talking about the flip side of it, which is the lo which is the localism. We have the globalism, the challenge from globalism, and I think that that you you can see, it's so transparent how anti-liberty that movement is the, the concentration of power. Like you said, one of the things you mentioned at the very beginning was Brexit was, was at least all things being equal. It was still, they did Brexit. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it, I'm not quite sure. It was an amazing thing to see the English do. I mean, did you think they had that, they, that they had it in them? <laughs> I don't think I did. Yeah. Neither did their leaders. Right. What's the American version? Well, Trump had to happen. Right. We had to have something come along and disrupt this idea that there is a, an inevitable progressive arc to history. And that was manifested in the form of Hillary Clinton as obviously the next president and obviously the first female president, et cetera. So something that had to be stopped. So Trump, you love him or hate him, that it had to be stopped. The Bush and Clinton crime families had to be kneecapped for, for once, for good and all. And they were. And, and so um, it's a, probably the damnedest thing in my lifetime. It really is. It really, it, 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 it surprised everyone. And I have so many friends and I, and I count myself among their number who started out deeply skeptical. And there were many disappointments and there are still many disappointments in the whole package. But the, he did he did change the course of he, the guy changed the course of history uh you know and he re, and he revealed so much of what's under the rock and for you know that alone like we you, you really can say out loud what we're fighting in a way that we could not do and wouldn't even have known to do five years ago or six years ago and and what's under the rock is that i think it's pretty clear now that the 21st century is not necessarily about ideology. Um, it's not necessarily about, roughly speaking, the 20th century was about socialism versus capitalism, in my opinion. 
Um, and we like to think capitalism won. I would say social democracy won, which is what the West does now by default, which is socialism within the capitalist framework. We've all decided, hey, you know, everybody's got to partner with the government. If you own a business, uh, the government gets partial control over it. It tells you about wages and regulations, all taxes, all kinds of things. So that's a that's a silent partner, a partner you didn't choose. And the whole idea uh, of, of, of pinning socialism on control or ownership of the means of production, that that is an artifact of the of the Industrial Re so. revolution. It's got nothing to so. do with social democracy. OK, fair enough. So I would argue that the twenty the question the two big questions about the twenty first century are um, populism versus elitism. In other words, technocracy versus uh, average people is is one of the big dividing lines, and that that has that relates to urban rural other things like that. But you know, uh, populism versus elitism, and on that axis, I got to come down strongly on the side of populists. Um, elites screwed everything up. They screwed up medicine. They screwed up education. They screwed up banking. They screwed oh up money. They great... screwed up war and peace. So, so in that sense, populism, which is an empty vessel ideologically, you fill it. Uh, populism is entirely justified. But I, I think the second question, the 21st century is, is if we would say uh, elitism versus populism is about who decides, then localism is about where do we decide? And and I think we everybody thought the Hillary Clintons of the world thought that this was again an inexorable arc to history. What used to be decided locally became uh, maybe at your state house, which became in Washington D.C., and then pretty soon it was going to be decided at Brussels or at the U.N. or at the I.M.F. or at the World Bank or something like that. And then this was inexorable. This globalist, internationalist element to political decision making, which is of course deeply anti-democratic, because every step farther away from local, your 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 vote, your say is attenuated. But yes, now I, I think it, that's what it, the it, British picked up because they, but maybe know, they we're have, going the other yeah. way. I mean, imagine right. if we went the other way in the 21st century away from centralization of politics to decentralization of politics. That, to me, is more interesting and important right now than ideology. Well, think about this. I, you know, I was crowing, I remember, frequently uh, five or six years ago that, listen, you can get distracted by national races, but state house by state house, conservatives are really in increasing their power and then yada, yada. And then I, all of a sudden I realized while I, we're focusing on what we thought was democracy, George Soros is looking for the, the wrinkles, looking for those little interstices, mm -hmm. and he funded this entire you know, projects to basically to unhinge law, uh, unhinge criminal law from its from its enforcement, and was very successful in doing it. So we real so now we we got outflanked. This was the reaction to democracy was to, and and it's not only you know the, 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 this democratic money or or, or left wing money didn't only go into prosecutor. Um, races that went into school board races, mm -hmm. where all of a sudden parents are asking school boards questions. And yeah, I guess there's a little bit of administrative capture there where the teachers unions have this influence just based on local phenomena over the school boards. But clearly, you know, you're hearing things from these school board members in not very, very big towns that are phenomenally out of touch with what real parents and real traditional education would look like. So it's it's an incredible battle and it's being fought on so many levels. Well, you mentioned this battle, at least it's being fought. Um, 
I think they woke up the right in some ways that they may yes. regret. I think you're 100% right. I think that they, they, they lost the ability to choose the battles. And by going to the schools, you're 100% right. And my wife, Jane Coleman, does a lot of writing on this. Uh, the, the battle over the schools, that started coming home to people's living rooms. I mean, it's still amazing what people are letting their kids do and see and participate in. But I, I think that's a very good point. It, it, it is becoming hard. You know, it's like cockroaches, right? The light goes on where we're, you see what closet they're coming out of now. Okay, so that's going to, we've got to clean this one out and we got to get rid of that bottle of honey because it's attracting ants so little by little hopefully you know if they don't shut us up too effectively and efficiently you know which is why i do this podcast because i'm trying to get people to think about things that are no longer being discussed there's no firing line anymore it's you know they're, they're, mm -hmm. they're mm -hmm. it, it's all here on alternative media i'm the i'm the william f buckley but you know i don't one well one it does really is best I mean, if you if you get trapped in an airport and CNN is blaring, it, it you cannot conceive of how inane it is. Everything interesting and good and beautiful and true is happening on the margins, in, in you know on podcasts or wherever it's happening, and that that's that's where the action is, and that's I think a, a, again a happy thing. It's a happy thing that we have you join us today. Thank you very much for coming. All right, on. thank you. Hey, thank you for listening to the Coleman Nation podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. For more information, please visit the show's website at coleman-nation.com. That's coleman-nation.com. Or you can visit my blog at likelihoodofconfusion.com. Join us next time on the Coleman Nation podcast and have a great day.